Comfort, 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 those who share in the hope we have in Christ. Allow us to spend this time to encourage one another, build each other up, as we find in your word amazing truths that will enlighten us and by your spirit guide us. Amen. Okay, we're in Isaiah chapter 41. Last time we left off at verse 11, right? So Isaiah 41 verse 11. We got to start reading. Let's just read 11 and 12 together, I guess. I'll start us off. Actually, um, before we jump in, just to get get our context here, uh, God was talking about the idols last time. Recall where we were. Tearing down the thought that idols that need to be propped up are any good. And then he talks about Israel, who he's chosen, Jacob, who he's called, um, encouraging them that I'll be with you. So, in light of that, verse 11, all who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be nothing at all. We'll pause there. So Israel only had to wait, and they would see Assyria. Remember at this time they were being trampled over. And then the great Babylonian empire quickly become nothing. I think it was, was the last time we saw that the nations are nothing before him? So he says, you'll see, they're going to become nothing, because that's what they are. How are these words fulfilled for all believers? When he says, because he's, he's not directly saying it's just Assyria and Babylon. He's saying, those who rage against you, those who oppose you will be nothing. You'll search for your enemies and you won't even find them. How's that going to be fulfilled for everyone, all believers, that is? Certainly, on the, on the last day, we're going to find, you know, this happened for the Israelites. You know, we had Assyria. It was uh, 2,743 years ago or so, 45 years ago. Long time ago, the, the, the arrogant, wicked kings of Israel were taken away by Assyria, but Assyria crumbled in the Battle of Carchemish. It was 605 B.C., and then you don't hear from them anymore. Nobody talks about the Assyrian Empire today as being on the scene or causing trouble. They're gone. 605 BC, they allied themselves with the Egyptians, but they lost to the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians, they came on the scene and destroyed the temple, 586 BC, thinking we're the new power and no one can ever stop up, rise to the incredible heights extremely fast, relatively speaking, on the world page. But then suddenly Babylon falls from its great height to the Persian king Cyrus in 539. And now they're just a bunch of ruins and historical books mention them, but they're nothing anymore. But yeah, ultimately, every proud nation is going to be like dust on Judgment Day. Someone have a Malachi 4, 1 to 3? For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Thanks. See, so that, that picture when nothing will be left of the evil, the arrogant, 
the wicked, those who, as Isaiah says, those who oppose you, they're going to be nothing. Actually, what are they described as there in Malachi? Not entirely nothing, but ashes. Yeah, as, as good as dust. Ashes under your feet. And what a neat picture for what we are. We're like calves jumping for joy, released from the stalls. So that, that will be when God comes in judgment. So ultimately, this day will come for all believers. And you're not going to find your enemies anymore. Uh, they won't see or bother you in the slightest. Uh, someone want to read the next verse, verse 13? Sure. Judy? You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? Are you in a chapter 41? Oh, back in Malachi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We could jump to Malachi if you want. Well, first we've got to finish Isaiah. That'll okay. take a bit. <laughs> Yeah, so it's more than a generation because the Assyrians are they're destroying the, the northern kingdom as I mentioned, 722 and then the Babylonians come on power 605, so it's 115 plus years doing some quick math Right, and then Babylon will have them in captivity for about 70 years Yep So you have two to three generations at least that are under the Assyrians. And then when the Babylonians come, you've got about two generations. So a long time. We'll, we'll look at that later on in chapter uh, 42, how God's view of time um, shouldn't disturb us as if he's taking too long. You want so, to read the right verse? Okay, 41 verse 13. Thanks. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. So what comfort do you find from that picture? God himself. And that picture of taking hold of your right hand. So he's not just going to be like, I'm going to send you on your way. He's there with you, supporting you, upholding you. We talked about how the idols topple over. Well, guess what's holding up believers? The Lord himself. And then just so much comfort there. I am your God. When, when God says to you, do not fear because he will help us, uh, what should we fear? As Paul says, if God is himself is for us, who can be against us? However, look at the next verse. Who are we? <laughs> Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Why is the title worm not such a bad thing here? Normally being called a worm would be like a... Not a good thing. Uh, you know, someone calling you a name or putting you down. What about when God calls you? Inferior. Yeah, inferior. You, you can do nothing, you worm. Squirmy and ugly and worthless. Just for that, I'll put you on the hook. Good for nothing but casting to the fish, using his bait. But when God calls us a worm, what, what kind of tone do you feel here? And when he says, do not be afraid, you worm. Does he mean how small you are? Is that what he means by that? Yeah. So you're small, you're powerless, you're weak. But you still don't need to be afraid, even though you might feel like an R, really essentially like a worm, helpless in your own state. So I don't think God is mocking them here. He's putting them in their place, but saying, even though you are a worm, like a worm, compared to all the nations raging around you, I will help you. And why should God help a worm? So it's grace, too. Uh, the fact that God would step in for us, mortal 
people doomed to return back to dust because of sin, and yet he says, I will help you. And some titles for God here. So you look at verse 14. Yeah, I talked about the, the Holy One of Israel would come up in Isaiah. The Holy One of Israel is the only one who's of Israel. You know, he, he was born, was lived as an Israelite, but he was holy. God is the Holy One of Israel, and also he is the Redeemer of Israel. He made the promise to Israel. Yeah, if you have the English Heritage Version here, there's a note, you insect Israel. So the Dead Sea Scrolls apparently have a reading. Uh, one of the dead ones reads, you dead ones of Israel. It seemed little Israel could be squashed as easily as a bug, but the Lord would protect them. So yeah, the, the point isn't you know derogatory that you're ugly or squirmy like a worm. The point is you're helpless like a worm. You're weak like a little bug. So it emphasizes the, the helplessness of Israel. Faith in him alone can save him as redeemer for the lowly little worm. And notice, I myself, God is the one doing it, right? I myself will help you. It's not like God's going to send some advocate. He himself has to be our redeemer. He himself has to be the holy one who will rescue us. Thoughts, comments up to this point? Verse 13, 14. Someone want to read the next two verses together? Okay, Bill. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them, and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord, and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Right, so we have a picture of the ancient world's harvest system, which still in part is used today. How did they harvest their food? especially the grains. Yeah, so you have to thresh it, so you knock the chaff and the, the wheat loose from each other, and then the breeze, hopefully if you got a breeze, will blow that worthless chaff out of the way, so you get the seed that falls below. Sort of a way of sifting with the wind. And he says, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. And what's Israel going to thresh? Yeah, the, the mightiest things on earth will be threshed by them. Uh, things that you would think couldn't even be moved. So it's very poetic here. You reduce the mountains, you crush the hills. You're going to change this world, Israel. You, you worm, you think you can do nothing, you're going to take an entire mountain and alter its course. So they're really going to plow the nations. Uh, they're going to be the ones that will not be blown away. Compare that with what we see in Matthew 3.12, right? But John the baptizer says, His winnowing shovel is in his hand, or winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into his barn, burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's really not the ethnic Israel, it's believers, right? Believers will be like those calves, and everything else blows like ash or chaff away in the wind. Just some poetic pictures of here what Judgment Day is going to bring about. John the Baptist spoke of that, that the Messiah would carry this out. So picture when, when John starts saying his whittling fork is in his hand, he's saying he's, he's the one Isaiah spoke of. It comes up just one chapter after that prophecy of John the Baptist himself. Uh, probably you can also recall Isaiah 40, verses 4 through 11. It talks about you know God blowing on the grass. 
the breath of the Lord, Lord blows on them, and the people are grass and they wither. So similar pictures there. Could probably also jump forward to verse uh, 16, where it, the second half it says, You will rejoice in the Lord, and you will boast in the Holy One of Israel. So we're getting that Holy One of Israel picture coming up now. Who does the church boast in? The same guy who threshes the nations, uh, Jesus. Let's compare some translations here. If you look at the second half of 41, verse 16, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, and really it's based off of what we find also in the King James reads, you will glory in the Holy One of Israel. The English Heritage Version reads, in the Holy One of Israel, you will be confident. Or the Christian Standard Bible reads, you will boast in the Holy One of Israel. Really, the, the Hebrew term here, chalel, it's about to boast or praise someone. Um, take a look at what you have in Jeremiah 9.24, where it reads, Let those who boast, boast about this, that they know me, that they know I am the Lord, who shows mercy, justice, and righteousness on earth. Or think about what Paul says in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, boasting isn't bad, is it? Whether your translation says you'll glory or, or you'll take confidence in, he's the one you're going to boast in, uh, speak of his praises and who he's great, who is great. Now we get to a picture of water, which comes up quite a bit in Scripture. Verses uh, 17 through 20, a bit longer section, but I think this paragraph is good to read together here. Someone want to read the, the paragraph for us? Okay. The poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. I will answer them. I am the Lord, the God of Israel. I will not abandon them. I will open rivers on the barren heights and springs in the middle of the plains. I will turn the desert into a pool and dry land into springs. I will plant cedars, acacias, hurdles, and olive trees in the wilderness. I will put juniper trees, elms, and cypress trees together in the desert, so that all may see and know, consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Okay, so the the place is parched and thirsty. What's God going to do? Water. Water in the desert. Water where it doesn't often come or isn't often found. Even out of the, the grounds and the springs. And he does this so people will know who he is, that he has done it, because God promised it would happen. Uh, what are some other times? I want to just challenge you to come up with some other times that the Bible talks about this picture. Sure. This literally happened when God made water flow. Uh, now, Isaiah's writing some 700 years after that. But about six, seven hundred years earlier. And these people, they heard that story. Right. They know all about that. So if I make water flow where you, you couldn't expect in the barren places and turn springs of pool of water from the rock, you know I'm God. And he says, I've, I'm going to do it. Well, he's done it already for the Israelites. Good. How about other times that we see this? 
Samaritan woman said you would give her yeah. living water. Jesus tells her, if you'd known the one that asked you for a drink, you would, he would have given you living water. So he talks about that picture of a water that no one thirsts when they drink of. So yeah, it's John 4. Other times, water comes up. So we got John 4. Um, also connected to John 4 is John 7, when he says, Let the one who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, living waters will flow, as the scripture has said. So Jesus is basically saying in John 7, I fulfill Isaiah 41. And the picture there of water flowing is his word and his spirit pouring out his gifts to this world. So it's already happening. Okay, how about other times that we see water coming up? Mm-hmm. If any of you came to the, the chosen view and discuss, we watched uh, episode 6. They sang from the psalm, Psalm 42, My soul thirst for the living God. So it's a popular song. We sing the, as the deer pants for streams of water. So it's one of the motifs that comes up in the Psalms of thirsting for God's word. Uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah 12, maybe you recognize, there's a, a popular tune set to that. Therefore you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So Isaiah in chapter 12 talks about the, the flowing waters. And here it talks about the Holy One of Israel providing those waters in the desert. And then finally, um, Revelation 21.6 reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To anyone who is thirsty, I will give freely from the spring of the water of life. So right now we're fed by his gospel. In the eternal kingdom of paradise, we'll have the water of life that we can drink of forever. A free invitation. Right. So who else is in Israel that is without fault? You know, we see in the, the psalmist says, no one is righteous before you. You know, no one can stand. Have, the, the psalmist basically pleads, Lord, have mercy on me because no one can stand in your presence except one, the Holy One of Israel. He is perfect in every way. And Jesus, you know, rightly says, no one is good but God alone. Not saying he's not, but there is one in Israel who does what God demands of Israel, who keeps Israel's laws perfectly, this Holy One. What was that Revelation passage again? About the water? Uh, Revelation 21.6. Turn right to the end of your Bible, and you'll find it. The picture of water, actually, it's, it's a motif from the very beginning. We could talk about it you know, for a long time, because the earth was covered with waters, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, God separated the waters, it's just, it comes up over and over. God judged this world, as Peter says, by water and through water. Well, he judged Pharaoh with water. He parted the sea and then he came crashing in on Right, so even that alludes to baptism, the, the rescue he gave through the Red Sea by destroying their enemies and giving them deliverance. Yeah, so water is a constant picture. It's a source of life. And it's, you know, when you think about it too, it's a it's molecular structure. Just... H2O. Together, it's water. It can put out a fire. If you separate the hydrogen and oxygen, it makes a fire. It'll blow up on you. Lord, your works are wonderful, and I know that so well, yeah. (laughs) We're just 
scratching at the surface of the marvel of God's creation and how he uses things. And here the picture stands pretty clear for us. Let's review this section here. Going all the way back to the start of chapter 41 now. So review 41, 1 to 20. So we talked, if you look early in the chapter, about God saying in verse 8, You, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen. And then verse 9, I have chosen you. Why is it important to remember that God chose us instead of boasting that we chose him? Because if it was up to us, we'd mess it up. Okay. If it was up to us, would we really we, choose we what is be, good and we right? We would be chasing all these other idols and, right. and things that, the glitter of the world. We, by nature, do not choose righteousness. We do not choose to serve a holy God. In fact, the scripture says we choose to rebel. We, we cannot do what is good. And if we choose anything, it's in blindness, because we're blind and dead. We can't choose what is spiritually good. Yeah. So that's an important thing to remember. And also, doesn't God's choosing us emphasize his glory and display of his grace? If you are talking about, I chose God, who are you glorifying? And if you're talking about choosing God, where is grace? Because, oh, she's right there, right? <laughs> but where is undeserved love if it's all based on your choosing? But rather, if it's based on God's choosing, it has to be on grace. That God would choose the worm, the nothing, the sinner, the unrighteous, and he chose us from eternity. That's kind of comforting too. When you, when you delve into scripture's teaching about God choosing Israel and all his people, he chose us before time began. So that choosing isn't anything we did or because we are worthy or invited him into our lives. And remember Jesus told his disciples the same thing. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And he said that for their comfort, uh, that they knew God had in grace called them. Or Paul writes, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would he choose us? It's only by grace. Well, that's the comfort of the entire gospel. Is you don't have to do anything. Right. And you know, I, I mean, it's a comfort knowing that you don't have to worry about, oh, did I do enough? I'm going to mess this up, mess that up, whatever, just... It's all in his hands and everything he does is perfect. So. Whether it's the, the work of the Father, Son, or Spirit, the, the Father created us, preserves us. He did this in his mercy. The Son redeemed us, did it in his mercy, and the Spirit called us and enlightened us. Yeah, the, the sought, bought, sought, bought, and, and taught. taught. Yeah, <laughs> sought, bought, taught. Yeah, I got to meet with uh, someone today who's interested in joining our congregation and just going with her on that. And I, I went through this part of Luther's explanation of the article that Luther rightly says, we cannot by our own thinking or choosing believe in Jesus Christ our Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit calls us by the gospel. And finally, look at what the context, the wider context here is. God says, speak to Jerusalem, proclaim to her, Comfort, comfort, a voice calling. God had to give his word to us. Uh, it's not that we sought him. He brought us to himself through the gospel. 
And finally, God gets the glory uh, when it comes down to it. Glory to God alone. Um, can you maybe, for the next review exercise here, give three reasons why we should not feel dismayed or overwhelmed? Maybe verse 10 would be a good place to center that discussion. So looking at this chapter, this section, what are three reasons why we should not feel dismayed or overwhelmed? Says, I am with you. I am your father. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Okay, I just said three. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> just over and over again, isn't it listed? And you can even go before that, right? Don't be dismayed or overwhelmed because you're chosen. And then as Pat read, you know, he's with you. He is your God. That means he identifies as he has responsibility and will fulfill his obligations and he calls you his own. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you by his own right hand. So just over and over again, comfort, comfort. As we know that he can do it. He has the ability. He created us. He created the world. Yeah. You just have to look around and see that, yeah, he can do it. That's the, the rest of the chapter talks about that, that everything else that might go against you, God just weighs them as nothing. He is the almighty God and he created all things. So not only is God promising all that for you, but this is the God who's over everything else and considers himself incomparable to the things that, that cause you frights or fears. Back to that verse 13 where he says, I am the Lord your God who holds your right hand. That, yeah. That's a really great verse. Right. Just, Reminds me of a Psalm 139 that he guides me by, by his, my right hand and your right hand will hold me fast. That We have this connection that he's holding on to us. Also, really the work of the Holy Spirit, right? That he not only called us to faith, but he sustains and strengthens us and guides us in the faith. All right, now the challenge, looking at these 20 verses of chapter 41, 1 to 20, can you find at least four pictures that describe the person and work of Christ going through these 20 verses? Give you a moment to scan through there. So that describe the person and the work of Christ. Maybe I'll give you the first one. So the first obvious one that I found is in chapter 41, verse 4, where he says, I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. So the first and the last in Revelation 21, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Christ takes on that title of being the first and the last. Any other things in here that point to the person and work of Christ? Verse 8. Okay. You, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Yeah. I have chosen you. You are my servant, points to Christ, who tells his disciples those very same words, I chose you, and who came for the descendants of Israel. How about verse 10? Jesus says, I'm with you always. According to his human nature, he now has all power, and he says, I'm with you always. Verse 10, do not fear, I am with you. 14. Okay, yeah. So the work of Christ, he's our Redeemer. Whenever you see that title of God redeeming, how did he redeem us? He paid 
with his own blood, with his own suffering and death. And also uh, the person of Christ, the Holy One of Israel. He's the Holy Son of God. He's not just an ordinary man. Only Christ could fulfill that role. We found at least four. Any more that you can find? Well, 15 and 16. Okay, 15 and 16. Yeah, the, the idea of the, the chaff and the winnowing fork. John the Baptist prophesied that very thing, pointing to the Christ. One more, at least, obvious one. He created everything. And he, he made all the, did all that from 17 through 20. Okay, from 17 to 20, which we looked at today, right? Yeah. The water in the desert, Jesus said, come to me and drink. Freely drink of the living water. So definitely fulfilled and points to Christ and his work. Good. And that's going to be our goal throughout all this study is you could just say, well, okay, this is all well and good for ancient Israel, but this is fulfilled for all people in the Holy One of Israel, in Christ. Final thoughts, any questions up to this point on 41, 1 to 20 before we move on to the next section? And you know, all this that the prophets say, you know, foretold what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, it's also important to realize that 700 years before somebody said this, so and now it's happening. Joseph Smith can't make that claim or anybody else, any of these other prophets. Right. There was nothing foretold that one day we were going to have multiple wives or we were going to be living in Salt Lake or, you know. <laughs> you know. They did. There's they, nothing to, to back up. Well, in fact, Joseph Smith, the, the Mormons did have some things foretold, but they didn't come to pass. It didn't happen. So that well, just yeah, the, one the end failure. Of the world, Jehovah's Witnesses claim to know yeah. that when the end of the world was going to. Yep. <clears throat> Good to remember. Good. All right. How about we go to the next section? And it's on the theme that we've just been discussing. So we've got to remember the start of this chapter, if you remember to last week, he called for a court gathering, remember? Let the nations come before and speak. Let them meet together at the place of judgment. And he started, you know, calling forth witnesses. So we're kind of going to that courtroom thing. Nobody else can do this. But 41, verse 20 to 29, I'm, I'm titling this section, No Other Could Foretell His Plans. So just what, what Bill was talking about there. So here we're actually going to see God return to the courtroom assembly as we found at the start of this chapter. Who now is called to the witness stand? Let's read it. 41, 21 to 23. Read it for that. Judy? Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are gods. Do something, good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. Yeah, let's stop there. <laughs> Thanks. So, who's called to the witness stand now? Before it was the nations to notice God's working. Now who's called? The idols, yeah. And notice, I think it's significant. Well, the worshippers are false idols. Right. But really, it's addressing the idols directly, isn't it? Tell us, you idols, what's going to happen? 
So it's kind of significant too, the title here, he says, says the Lord, says Jacob's king. So he's like a king calling in for the, the assembly of the court and he wants people to bring their witnesses. And he says, tell us idols, what's your witness? Tell us something, anything that you can foretell idols? Anything that happened in the past that you got right? Anything that's going to happen that you say is gonna, gonna be fulfilled? And then that's kind of interesting, do something, whether good or bad. Right? Doesn't matter what you're going to foretell, can you foretell anything? So the idols, here's the real irony, they can't even speak, nonetheless get something right. They're, they're mute idols, and they can't tell what will take place in the future, which the Lord can do. Alright, so there's the idols and their witness, and now he kind of gives an evaluation of them and their witness, verse 24. But you, idols, you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. So what does this chapter say about things like horoscopes, which people turn to for knowing the future? First of all, they're nothing. They can't give you anything real. Yep. So they're utterly worthless, their works... And actually, more than that, what else does he say about those who go to those things? Detestable. Yeah, the person who uses them is detestable. You're seeking information from what is false, worthless, and created, and trying to, to find truth where you'll never find truth. God finds that detestable. So all the, the people that boast about, oh, I, I got this message of the future, and I've got information. I, I saw it in my stars, or... The horoscopes tell me, so I trust in that. God says that that's detestable if someone does that. I know someone who bought a house because of getting a Chinese cookie. Right. They had a Chinese cookie, and twice it said that something, was, something good was going to change for me. And they bought a house on that. It's pure gamble and chance. It's nothing real. Yeah. But that this... The other side of the coin, too, is when you discredit God's word by saying, well, all these things are just a coincidence. Right. You know, not progress, coincidence. Yeah, how, how did that really happen? It didn't really get foretold. They try to, to say, explain away the timeline and say, well, he didn't really tell that ahead of time. It must have been written afterwards. And then, you know, the evidence of the text and the, the record of Scripture we have proves them wrong. Uh, that, yes, these things were written down. Meanwhile, God boasts in his truthful prophecy of what he would do for Israel. He alone is right about the future. He's always right and never wrong. All right, now let's read verse 25 to 29. After God has presented his challenge, he presents his own evidence. So the, the idols are worthless. He says, you can't prove anything. Here's my evidence. Who wants to read God's evidence in verse uh, 25 to 29? We'll finish off the chapter here. Bethany? I stirred up one from the north, and he has come, from the rising of the sun, and he shall call on my name. He shall trample on rulers, as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning, that we might know, and before time, that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I first have declared it to Zion, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good tidings. 
But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor, who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are empty winds. Yeah. So a sad reality is God looks upon Jerusalem. He gives them good news. I'm first to tell you this. No one else foretold you that this would happen. And there's none among the false gods to give counsel. They're all false. So God spoke of one. He describes him here. He says, I stirred up one from the north. And he treads on rulers as if they were mortar. So kind of undefeated. But he's really speaking of, if you look at this, the coming of Cyrus long beforehand. Just to recall the, the timetable here, Isaiah begins prophesying maybe around 740, I believe it, we said. So in the beginning of the chapter, when it says he stirred up one from the east, that's Cyrus, and stirring up one from the north, that's also Cyrus? Yeah, you got the fertile crescent, so he lived directly to the east as the bird flies, but he would travel north and come from the north as he came down into, even though he, yeah, Babylon and Persia, all those places where these armies are coming from are, are generally speaking, they're going to be to the east of Israel because obviously the west is the Mediterranean Sea, but they actually travel from the north. Yeah. Or as your geography goes this way. Okay. So he spoke of something only God could foretell. And a lot of historians try to discredit that, that, that God actually foretold the sudden destruction. Because it happened you know, relatively fast uh, that both Assyria, when the Babylonians came onto power very quickly, and also very quickly the Babylonians crumbling under Cyrus, which is really what he's speaking of here. But God is basically saying, here's my evidence. Did anybody else foretell this guy would come and do this? That would be unstoppable. You didn't see it coming. Uh, verse 28. Look, there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give an answer when I ask them. So it's kind of pathetic as he's presenting this courtroom scene, the idols can't even present their evidence. They would not respond because they cannot. God's really mocking their inability to give a single word. Explain why people are so lost that they would look for truth from something which cannot even respond with a single word of truth. Well, that's your natural rebellion against God, for one thing. One, we reject his word. You know, and people don't like to hear about their faults. There's another problem we have with our... Right, we're so lost that we don't like to hear we're lost. So God tells us, you are a sinner, you're a worm, you're nothing, you need me. We don't no, like to hear that. that. So that's one sad, pitiful reason why sinners remain lost, is we, is we so fight against the light. Which is probably the root cause for why people are always bucking authority, and we have the problem we have in our country that we have. Yeah, there's a, a desperate fashion of where do we find truth, which news outlet, which, you know, smart person, which scientist, whatever it might be, we're turning desperately to find truth. Except for here, where God has already spoken, long written down truth. And God gets proven right over and over as his prophecies are fulfilled. 
Right? I think we have enough time to review the whole chapter now. So let's see if we can review, first of all, this section. So Isaiah 41, 21 to 29. Can you list some of the times when God foretold something in his word and it was fulfilled many years later? Pretty much throughout Scripture. Yeah. Any specific examples that stand out in your mind? Abraham and Sarah. Okay, God told Abraham, I believe it was 400 years ahead of time, he told Abraham that they would receive the promised land, which already was inhabited by other strong nations, but God said, nope, I'm going to give it to your descendants. The, and it seems like a long list when you read you know, what he says to Abraham, the land of the Jebusites, the Hittites, the you just read the Amalekites, all those nations that are listed. They're listed for a reason, because they really did exist. Well, even there's not Isaac. And God gave them an occupied land. They were part of the same families. 400 years ahead of time, Abraham didn't even have a son. At that time. And God said to Abraham, you're going to have a son. That was fulfilled. And that fulfillment of having that promised son was a promise to him and his descendants to know, I will give you the impossible. I will fulfill what you would never imagine. And so he did it. They were in Egypt. They were slaves. How are they going to get out of that? God fulfills it, just as prophesied 400 years earlier. They left Egypt. The flood. Sure, the flood. Uh, Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years, and it came, just as he foretold. Jesus spoke of his crucifixion ahead of time. He said, uh, yeah, at least three times we have recorded where he says very plainly, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. Uh, they'll mock, they'll betray, I'll be betrayed, I'll be killed, I'll be crucified. And on the third day I'll rise again. It's not just the crucifixion, the resurrection, which also was foretold, as we'll see later on in Isaiah, very clearly foretold in Scripture, the Messiah, the Holy One would suffer, die, and rise again. So yeah, Jesus foretold that. And then Jesus also foretold things that would happen after his time, right? The destruction of the temple. He said, not one stone will be left on another. Who would have thought that after so many years of enjoying protection under Rome that a rebellion would occur and Rome would overturn every stone and destroy the temple and it wouldn't be rebuilt? All of God's plans are fulfilled. A look at Daniel's prophecies in the book of Daniel of the four nations that would come, fulfilled uh, over and over again. Good. So yeah, we listed quite a few. That's Good, uh, good start there. How would you respond to the wavering Christian who says that the horoscope and using celestial signs aren't really that harmful? If you put your faith and hope in one of those, you're in trouble. Right. Let them know that that's really what you're doing. If you, even if you just play around with it or just, no, it's just for fun. It's not going to harm anything. You're in trouble because you're taking your, your trust, your confidence, your boasting, not in the Lord, but in what he calls detestable and, and nothing, and what, what cannot save. All right, let's try to review the whole chapter before we're done today. How about that? So what might be a good summary or theme for chapter 41? God does it all. God does it all, certainly. Yep. Um, and if we're a worm, he's got to do it all. Sure, we see that come up at least twice, right? That he'll, he'll take us by our right hand. So the Lord, the Lord our God has our right hand. That'd be a good theme. God in Just don't have to worry. What's that? God in 
God calls the courtroom, yeah. So bring out that scene of he, he's calling for witness. Or maybe in God's courtroom, all must be silent. Might be a, a fitting theme, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's kind of one I had. It, Let all false gods be silent. I like how he brought the courtroom in. How about uh, only God, only the Lord knows the future? That's kind of a, a theme, I think, that comes up here. The idols, they can't predict the future. They can do nothing. Um, don't fear, God will help you. Israel, trust in him alone. Lots of good themes that would fit. Can you share some of the pictures or truths you found that offer what Isaiah was to cry out, comfort, comfort, as you meditated on chapter 41? What would you share gave you comfort in this chapter? Just really often says, I am the Lord, your God. Just, that's just so comforting to know. He's always with us. He never leaves us. Yeah. That this one who created and sustains all, who knows the future, calls himself our God. Therefore, we are his own. Other things that you found comfort in this chapter? Each one of us should come up with one, right? There's so many things for comfort in here. Just think of, uh, Pat kind of got towards his titles, his titles for us, right? I've chosen you. His promises of what he'll do for us, you know, bring water in the desert. His strength, the nations are nothing. His assurance that he will not fail. He's not the God who gets tired. Um, just so much in this chapter for comfort. Um, can you identify some of the types of idols worship today? And then compare them with what God says in this chapter. What are some of the idols people worship today? Anything that keeps anything that keeps you from worshiping your God, that would lead you from believing that God did it all and Jesus paid for your sins. Anything. Yeah. Um, anything that takes you away from God is an idol. That's a good working definition. What are some good good examples of an idol then? in today's culture and around us. An addiction to fishing. <laughs> so hobbies, yeah. I mean, Hobbies can be an that, idol. You know, or relying on the lottery ticket for to support you. Um, hobbies, the love of money, those things are all things you put your trust in. Your retirement accounts. <laughs> sure. The, the way that you manage your money and your own wisdom might be your, your idol. Just yourself and what makes you happy. Yep, yourself. So who are you praising and boasting in? Me, myself. Transgender Um Yeah, the way that you can change your body will somehow make you happy. No, God has given you all that you need in his word and with his son. So yeah, we, we make so many things into idols. Uh, today it's also celebrities, politicians, if you're going to turn people into idols, right? Um, whatever it might be. If someone's listening to the recording, the air conditioning just paused, and that's why you're getting a clear recording now. Yeah, politics is a good example of getting on the bandwagon and worshiping certain people and everything. If you place all your hope in them, yeah, that yeah. that's idolatry. <clears throat> it's okay to support good causes and to find people who are faithful and just and support that cause, but don't make it your, your everything. And don't put your hope in it. 
Can you share one picture or illustration from this chapter that you especially can understand because of your experiences? So any, any pictures? We had a lot of pictures thrown at us in this chapter. Anyone that really helps you or speaks to you because of your own experiences? If anyone was a lawyer, they might get the whole courtroom thing. I was thinking about that part where it talks about you being a worm. Okay. And how it make you all small. But if you look at what they present the, our uh, solar system, plus our, our galaxy, sure. and all the other galaxies out there, the universe, yeah, that makes you really, really small. Right. So when we meditate on God's creation and His works and the size of this universe... It really puts in perspective, we are helplessly small, like a worm. And I think that's a picture that probably we should carry with us. But that he says, I am your God. Even don't be afraid, worm. And that's an amazing thing. If you ever feel insignificant, look to that part. That God knows you're small, and you should see how small you are. But he still becomes your Savior God. Good picture to identify with. And you also want to share your picture that stands out for you with your experience? Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So your experiences, you find that particular a good picture, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Finding strength, someone upholding you, someone that's with you. Someone that's in charge. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you find that throughout this chapter, right? The I, I, I. And why, why should we not fear? Because of the I am who is with us, who is upholding us. Yeah. When I look at this, I, I like the picture of the water because recently I've started enjoying hiking and I think about how much water you have to carry to, to go hiking on these hot days. Tomorrow we're going to go up to the Sea Canyon area. And God says he's going to give us all the water we need. We'll never thirst that's a, a powerful picture when you experience the lack of water. Finally, let's see if we can find in this chapter the following. We just did finding the work of Christ. Any new ones come out in this last section? Pictures of the work of Christ in the, the final verses. He treads on ruler as if he were a potter treading clay. Ultimately, what he calls for the servant Cyrus, he is going to do over all nations. He's going to keep that. Uh, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all that prophecy. Um, as I look throughout the chapter, I think the universal nature of Isaiah's message is found quite a bit, right? Where do we find the universal message from all? Oh, it's really not just for Israel. Where do we find that in this chapter? Lord, the first of them and the last of them. Okay, he's, he's always been around. Even before the nation of Israel existed, he is, he is God. And he will continue forever. Other things that go beyond just the ancient Israel of Isaiah's time, how do you see God as the universal God in this chapter? Who's called to the courtroom? The idols. The idols are, and before that... Let the nations come forward and speak. Let's meet. Let's talk this over. So God's calling everybody around the world, every false idol, every nation, to listen to his courtroom proceedings. Other ways that we see it, a universal message. 
God's in charge. He's in control of the nations. He's the one that stirred up one from the north, right? He controls all nations. Created everything. And when it comes to all the other gods, there's an emphasis. There is no other god who can answer. So he is the only god when it comes to the gods of this world. How about at least four comforting truths in this chapter for ancient Israel and for all God's church today? We'll close with that. Just to review everything. We're chosen. Sure, that's comforting for ancient Israel to know, hey, don't forget God chose you. You know, he, he called Abraham out of the land where he was with Terah, his father, where they were unbelievers. He chose him to be his own. He gave Abraham his word and he set him apart. That would have been comforting to Israel when they knew all the other nations were coming against them. We are chosen, right? We are also God's chosen people, and Peter says. Redeemed. Yeah, they were redeemed. Um, he says he's paid for their sin in chapter 40. Your, your Redeemer, we have been redeemed. And if you go back to verse 10, it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. Yeah, ancient Israel is starting to wonder, does God not notice? Does he not see? They're starting to wonder about his care. That would have been comforting to go, I'm with you, God says. Even as you're facing these attacks, I'm with you. Same thing for us. God says, I am with you always. So true for ancient Israel, true for us and comforting for us today. Well, today we have his word. You know, back then they had eyewitnesses to all this stuff going on. God spoke to people. Um, he made things happen and miracles and everything that people actually eyewitnessed. And we have the record of it all. Yeah, when God tells Israel, hey, I foretold this, it's in the Word, we get to look on all the Word and see how it's all fulfilled. We can look on the record of God's history from beginning to end, and it's comforting for us to know God fulfilled His promises throughout history. Good. I think that was four, right? Um, I misplaced my page 10, but I think that was the last I had there for that. All right, as we close the chapter, any other thoughts on this chapter that you found? or want to discuss. All right, why don't we close with a prayer about what we read today. I thank you for bringing us comfort today as we ponder the courtroom proceedings that you had all the idols silent before you from the very beginning. You alone are eternal. You alone know what is to come. And you alone have foretold what is to come. We thank you for fulfilling your word, not only to Abraham and Israel, but to all people as you became our Redeemer, and that you call us your own and chose us in grace. Help us to turn aside from all other sources of truth which are only false and detestable. And we recognize, Lord, you alone, you alone can carry out what you have promised. And you have promised water in the desert. You have promised to carry us, sustain us, strengthen us, and told us not to be afraid. Bless us with your gospel promises. Amen.
Oh, yeah.